So over the years, uh, I've done a pretty fair amount of pre-marriage counseling, and if you're not if you're not sure what that is, I know not not everybody goes through that. But basically, it's when a young couple is engaged, or an older couple, I guess, is engaged, getting ready to get married, and they want to talk through some of the important things that need to be talked through before they end up spending their life together. And uh, in many ways, it's more it's less counseling, and, and from my perspective, it's more like pre-marriage asking questions or pre-marriage wisdom sharing, um, really just trying to get them to talk through, think through, process some of the things that they wouldn't necessarily process on their own. Things that are pretty common sense if you've been married for a while, or maybe should be common sense, um, but things that aren't necessarily things that are common sense to them yet because they haven't lived yet. So it, for me, for those of you guys who know me and know my personality, this is always fun for me because a lot of the couples that I end up meeting with before they get married are are couples that I've known for a while, right? I've, I've, some of them I've known their families for years, and now I get to sit down with these two individuals who are about to get married, and I like to ask them about their families, because obviously family of origin, the way they grew up, plays a lot into what they're going to experience in their marriage and how they're going to react to different life situations. And so I, I get to find out what their family is really like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Okay, what's it like to grow up with your mom and dad, who I've known for years, but I always see them at church when they're being really nice, right? So I get to find out some of the nitty gritty, which is always good. Um, uh, and and I also like to I like to torture them with my limited awkward gene. You know, like you know how some people feel awkwardness right away. Um, you know, if there's any kind of a pause in a conversation, they feel awkward. I I don't have much of an awkward gene, and so when the topic of sex comes up, I like to see them squirm when I'm not feeling awkward at all. Uh, I spend some time trying to get them to fight in front of me, <laughs> which is uh, in some ways cruel, but at the same time, I'm trying to help them through some of these things that are going to happen in their marriages. And so if I can get them to fight a little bit in front of me, then I can kind of see how they really fight and not just how they say they fight. So, um, but anyways, the, the, uh, all that to say that the last time that we meet, I'll, I'll meet with a couple anywhere from you know, I guess one time to seven or eight times, depending on what the needs are. Um, but no, without fail, the last time that we meet, we do two things. Uh, first thing, we plan the ceremony, right? We, we go through some of those details. How do you want to do this? How do you want to do that? What do you want me to say? What do you want me to not say? All, all those different things. And then before we're done, I always, I, I look him in the eye, we put our pens down, we close our computers, all those things. And I say, listen, you don't have to get married. You don't. And now they always get this weird look on their face like, we're paying you to marry us. Why, why are you saying that? But, but I want them to know that this may, by, by this point, they're usually maybe a month out, maybe two months out from their wedding. And I say, listen, this may feel like it's inevitable, right? This process may feel like a freight train that can't be stopped at this point. There's money on the line. There's crazy family dynamics on the line. It would be rough to step back and decide to wait at this point. It would be rough to decide to stop at this point. But here's what you need to understand. This is forever, right? Like this is a forever kind of a decision. And some of them are making this decision at 21, 22, 23 years old. This is a forever decision. And so... If there is any hesitation, if there is any doubt, don't move forward just because you think you have to, just because there's a freight train moving at 100 miles an hour. It's better to end it now than ruin your life later 
and potentially ruin the lives of two and a half beautiful children later on, right? So you don't have to get married. Now, uh, probably no one is ever again <laughs> going to ask me to do their pre-marriage stuff, which is okay. That's fine. But but that's what I, I say to couples on the last time. I say that to them because here we are in 2020, and there seems to be a huge misunderstanding about what this whole marriage thing is about. Uh, culturally, nationally, even within the church, there seems to be a, a huge misunderstanding about what kind of foundation is supposed to be created, about how that foundation is supposed to be created. There, there seems to be a misunderstanding about what vows actually mean, both in the short term and the long term. There seems to be a misunderstanding about where marriage actually came from, who created it, who designed it, who made the rules, quote-unquote, for it? Who, who established the goals for marriage and all the aspects of it. And all of that misunderstanding, in the midst of all that, we have people spending their 20s and their 30s practicing for divorce. Now, right, that, that, that sounds unusual, but think about it. We, we have people in their 20s and 30s who spend time, they're dating or whatever, and they decide, hey, let's live like we're married. We're going to live together. We're going to do all the things that married people do. And then at some point, it's going to get hard. Life circumstances are going to change. And then, hey, we're not married, so we don't have to get a divorce. We'll just break up and go our separate ways. Now, that's painful. It's difficult. But they say, hey, let's move on. And so over the course of your early years, you, you do that a few times, and practice makes perfect. And so... It's no wonder that more than half of marriages end in divorce because we spend our early years of dating and all that other stuff, we spend time practicing for divorce. When things get hard, we'll cut ties and move on, right? And so then when marriage comes along, you've spent your life preparing for that type of finish, and that's what happens. So whatever view we've taken of marriage, whatever approach that we've taken, it isn't working. And so we've, we've jumped into this series called Relationship Goals, and this is actually the last of the four-week series, and I'd encourage you to go back and listen through if you've missed them. But we've talked about, really, goals that you should have for your marriage, goals that you should have for your relationships based on a biblical point of view. And the goals that we've laid out is that your relationships, your marriage, should, number one, be Christ-centered. It all hinges on that. Not just your marriage, but your life should be Christ-centered. And if your life is Christ-centered, then Christ not only becomes the foundation of your life, but he, he becomes the builder on top of that foundation. And all of the other things, marriage included, gets built on top of that foundation. Number two, your, your relationship should be mission-driven. The two of you, your family, united in a common passion, united in a common mission as a marriage. What are we going to be known for? What, you know, it could be it could be really spiritual stuff like like serving the poor, helping the homeless, or fighting human trafficking. Or it could be athletics. It could be the academic world where you have a, a, a common passion and you use that to impact other people with it. You build your family on it, and then you impact others. And then Joe challenged us last week to be a devil kicking marriage, right? To have the goal of being a temptation fighting marriage, where you help each other stay pure. You maintain that focus on what God has called you to as a couple. And so today, we move on to the last one. And, and all of these goals, they're not a guarantee of success, but I think looking at marriage from a biblical point of view, from a godly point of view, as the one who designed it, drastically improves our chances of not just surviving in a marriage, 
but thriving in a marriage. And so I want to I lay the foundation again for us today because it leads us to our last goal. And, and I want to warn you, I'm going to be kind of talking about it in a, in a bit of a roundabout way. Um, so as I kind of go from here to there to there, stay with me. It's not a long trip, but it is kind of a roundabout trip. So stay with me. Um, I can't take questions at the end, so you just have to <laughs> rewind and catch up if I lose you at some point. But I'm going to do my best. So first thing, I, I want to talk about God and covenants, right? God and covenants. Because a covenant is something that goes all the way back, uh, and we see it first in the Old Testament. And so I want to go back to Genesis chapter 12. And those of you who have been with us, uh, we did a series on the first family, went all the way back to the book of Genesis. And so this is going to be familiar to you uh, if if you've been with us at Fieldstone through the winter. But in Genesis chapter 12, God has called Abraham aside and said, I I want you to go leave your family, leave your land, and I've got a a blessing for you. And this is how he lays it out in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. God says to Abraham, he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you, in turn, will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless the earth through you And then later, God affirms this covenant. He affirms this promise to Isaac, who's Abraham's son. He reaffirms the promise to Jacob, who comes after Isaac. And God basically says, this, this isn't a contract. This isn't, I do this if you do that. It's, it's not a 50-50 thing. It, it's a covenant. It's forever. Right? And there are agreements within that covenant. There are some expectations within in that, within that covenant. But the difference is, If one side fails, the other doesn't bail, right? It's a covenant. It is forever. And so then God doubles down on this later on in the Old Testament as he's dealing with Moses and and the whole Exodus thing. So in Exodus chapter 6, listen to what God says to Moses. This is Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 2. It says, God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, And to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. So God is kind of reminding, hey, I'm the same God who made that covenant with Abraham, I'm the same God who reaffirmed it with Isaac, who reaffirmed it with Jacob, and I see what's going on with the Israelites, and I haven't forgotten. And and he says this in verse 6, Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. Right? Same thing he said to Moses, same, same thing he said to Abraham. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Verse 7, this is huge. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. God says, I said it before, and I meant it. I'm saying it again, and I mean it. I will be your God. You will be my people. This is not a contract. It's a covenant, and it's timeless. So then we fast forward again. 
And we see an interesting situation in Exodus chapter 32 where this covenant gets tested a little bit, right? Those of you who've been married, you've entered into a marriage covenant. It's been tested at times, right? Like you look over and it's like, who is that dude, right? Like who? And you look back at her and you think, who does that? Who talks like that? And your covenant gets tested a little bit. So in Exodus 32, the plagues have happened. Uh, the Egyptians have, have let the Israelites go. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've experienced deliverance. They've experienced freedom. And they go, they've come through all these things. And the Israelites go, and God, uh, we like this toy calf that we just made better than we like you. Right? Like, all of these things have happened. God has produced all of these miracles in order to deliver them from Egypt. And they go, hey, hey, God, we, we, we made this toy cow out of some gold that we melted, and we think we like that cow better than you, right? <laughs> in fact, we're pretty sure that this cow, this calf that we just made, that's the thing who did all those miracles. And so we're going to worship this golden cow, right? Like, it seems so ridiculous. And so he, God responds in just the most amazing way, um, kind of a scary way. But, but here's what it says in Exodus chapter th- uh, 32, uh, starting in verse 7. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, get, get off this mountain, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. Yeah, tell me about it. Verse 8, They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. They are giving credit to the golden calf for delivering them out of Egypt. The golden calf that they just created with their own hand. It's the most ridiculous thing. Verse 9, God says, I have seen these people, and they are a stiff-necked people. God says, Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. So God says, God, I'm done. Right? I'm, I'm going to start over. I'm going to wipe these people out. Moses, I trust you. You're going to be the restart. We're going to start fresh, just like I did with Noah. We're going to start fresh with you, Moses. I'm done. Look at what happens in the next verse, in the verses following, in Exodus 32, 11. It says, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Jump down to verse 13. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to whom you swore by your own self. God, you said, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Moses reminds him, he said, What about the covenant, God? You said this was not a contract. You said it was a covenant. You said it was forever. You cannot wipe these people out. Remember your covenant. And in verse 14, says that then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. God says, you're right. It is a covenant. It is forever. Now, did Moses change God's mind? Was God really going to wipe them out? And did Moses change his mind? Well, 
yes and no, but, but there's a bigger purpose here than figuring out if God actually changed his mind, and we'll come back in a second. So that's, that's kind of quick walk through God and covenants coming through Genesis and Exodus and kind of laying the foundation of things. I want to fast forward because what we find out as we go to the New Testament is that God established a new covenant. Right, so jump to, we just came through Easter a couple weeks ago, so jump up from Exodus to uh, the week of the Last Supper. Jesus is about to die. They're gathered around this table celebrating the Passover together, and Jesus is, is kind of shedding some more light on what's actually about to happen, why he came, uh, trying to explain to his disciples what's, what's really going on here. And so in Luke chapter 22, we come to kind of that the first communion, that, that the Lord's Supper that we celebrate together. And it says in Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, it says that Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus says, salvation, as much as it has kind of been intertwined in the past with your obedience and with the law and being my people, salvation is now by my sacrifice. Salvation is by my blood. This is a new covenant. It's built on top of the original covenant, but it's also meant to supersede the original covenant. Now forget you're forgiven and you're made new. I'm offering you a full life and eternal life. You'll be united in Christ and you'll be united with Christ. And just like the first covenant, it's forever. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Uh, Paul is writing this letter and he says, Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, that's Christ, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. Verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Now, no, this, a couple of these lines, it, it kind of feels like a contract. It feels like there's some back and forth, kind of trading this for that. But just it's, it's just similar to the Old Testament covenant where obedience equals a blessing. Disobedience equals a curse. And so some of that is, is being referred to here. But in verse 12, he says, you think, man, does this mean if I mess up, I'm done, right? If I disown him, he'll also disown us. If I screw up, if I deny him, am I out? No, right? Because we take scripture as a whole. And so we can look back at somebody like Peter and think, man, Peter denied Christ, but Jesus sought him out for restoration. So this isn't like, this isn't like, hey, the, the contract is broken. But in verse 13, we're reminded that in this covenant, we are one with Christ and Jesus cannot disown himself and so the covenant of his sacrifice the oneness the unity cannot be broken this new covenant just like the old covenant it's forever right so we've talked about that original covenant how God sees these covenants we've talked about the new covenant and how Jesus interacts with us through the sacrifice and his blood so with all that in mind now let's jump back to marriage, right? So uh, I told you I'd get there. <laughs> it's coming around. So let's talk about the marriage covenant. And for that, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Because in this passage, you, trust me, you have heard this passage. If, you, if this is the first sermon you've ever heard, you've heard this passage if you've ever been to a wedding, right? Ephesians 5 is where it talks about biblical relationships, 
biblical marriage as Christ followers. It talks about love for your spouse, respect for your spouse, mutual submission within your relationship. Why? Right? Because in Ephesians 5.30, it talks about how we're all part of his body. And so we're united and we're equal and there's love and respect within those relationships as part of the body of Christ. But then in Ephesians 5.31, let's look, look at what it says. It says, for this reason, because of our unity in the body, because of what God expects of relationships, because of covenant, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So he re reaffirms what we're talking about, right? The marriage covenant all the way back to Adam and Eve that we talked about in the first week, how this this profound, this weird thing about how man interacts with a woman, all this stuff. We're talking about the marriage covenant. Then, interesting thing in verse 32. So he says, we're talking about how a man is united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. Verse 32, this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. It's like, wait, he... He just got done laying out a bunch of stuff between a husband and wife. But then he says this whole thing, the relationships we've been talking about, the dynamics in those relationships we've been talking about, the covenant of marriage that we've been talking about is actually about Jesus and his church. It's about Jesus and his body. It's about Jesus and us. And so it's like we're saying to God, hey, this, God's saying this covenant of marriage, how do I feel about it? I feel about it the same as I feel about my covenant with Abraham and with Israel. It's the same as I feel about my covenant with you through Jesus' blood. This, this covenant with Abraham, this covenant through Jesus and his blood, this covenant of marriage, it's, it's, a, it's a not dependent on highs and lows kind of thing. It's a, it's a not broken by bad behavior kind of thing. It's a preserved through the best and worst kind of thing. It's a fight for it kind of thing. It's a forever kind of thing. The biblical goal of any marriage, more than surviving, more than thriving, the biblical goal of any marriage is to be covenant keeping. Just like God. That's the goal. Now, the problem that arises is a big one. The problem that arises is sin. Right? Marriages do struggle. Marriages do end. And there, there honestly, there may be times when I would personally look at a situation and look at scripture and come to the conclusion and say, I think this one's done. All right, you think, think about some of the different practical scenarios. If it's unsafe, if it's bringing shame to the name of Christ, if the marriage is a hindrance to the gospel. And I'm, I'm not going to get fully into that side of it today. I'm not avoiding that, that topic of divorce and things like that. Just don't have enough time. It's a full extra sermon. Uh, but if, if you're curious about where I personally stand on it, where we stand on it as a church when it comes to divorce and even divorce and remarriage, um, we, we hit this topic pretty specifically just over a year ago. Uh, if you want to go back and listen, it was in our Sermon on the Mount series. 
and the talk was from February 17, 2019. You can go to fieldstonechurch.org slash audio. You can go to the iTunes and find it there. Um, but February 17, from back in 2019, in our Sermon on the Mount series, we talked about divorce and remarriage. Uh, but basically, uh, it comes down, you go to Matthew 19, you, you look at Jesus talking about divorce, and they ask him a very difficult question. He refers back to Moses. He says, yeah, yeah, th- there have been times when divorce was permitted, but there was always an, an extreme amount of sin and an extreme amount of brokenness going on. And it's a, it's a long conversation. There is no blanket response to the question of divorce, but it can happen. It does happen. There is sin. There is brokenness. Marriages do end. Covenants are broken but one thing is certain if you're sitting out there listening and you've lived through that and you're struggling through that God's goal for your marriage is that it would be a covenant keeping marriage and anytime there's a struggle if you were to come to me with a struggle in your relationship and it feels like it's heading towards the end if it's on the brink that's that's always where we're going to start we're going to start with God's goal for your marriage but God also knows that we're broken Broken people sometimes leads to broken covenants. And in those situations where our weakness is great, grace abounds. There is grace and he remains faithful. And so if you're sitting out there and you've been through a situation where a marriage covenant was broken and you've had to get out or someone else got out or you've lived through that, there is grace. This is not a condemnation on those who have who have missed out on the covenant-keeping goal, right? That, that's not what this is about. At the same time, covenant keeping is the goal for your marriage. So here's what I'd encourage you to do. And, and there's a lot of different married people listening to this. And, and uh, if you're single and you're anticipating relationships, um, I want to encourage you. If, if you're in it right now, if the time comes when you're in the thick of it, First thing, don't quit. Right? Don't quit. Fight for the covenant. Fight for your marriage. Here, here's what I want to say. When, when, if you're trying to decide what to do, how to handle something, how to react, I would say sacrifice everything but your soul and your safety for your marriage. Maybe and, and maybe that's the best way to sum it up. Sacrifice everything but your soul and your safety for your marriage. And when I say everything, I mean everything and anything, right? If 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 you come and tell me that you're you the two of you or your family, you guys need counseling, but you're gonna go broke to do it, I would say go broke, go bankrupt to save your marriage. Sacrifice your career for your marriage. I mean anything and everything. Sacrifice it for your marriage outside of losing your soul or losing the safety of your physical being. Don't quit. Then I'd say this, right? Because marriage is hard. Some of us have been through marriages that have ended. 
in the midst of whatever you have experienced, whatever in the midst of whatever you are experiencing, run to Jesus for healing, right? Counseling, absolutely. Support groups, absolutely. Uh, devotionals, absolutely. Friends that you trust, absolutely. But run to Jesus for healing. If you're married and it's a mess, he is faithful. If you're divorced and you're confused, you're lost, you're broken, maybe your future is uncertain, he is faithful. If you're remarried and you're doing your best to start over and lean into his grace and figure out this new blended thing, right? He is faithful. No matter how much we may struggle to keep our covenants with each other, God will never break his covenant with us. He will never break his covenant with you. These four goals that we've laid out over this series, right? Being Christ-centered, being mission-driven, um, being covenant-keeping, fighting temptation together. It, it's strange because in some sense it's like, duh, right? <laughs> but in the other sense, life, th there's no aspect of life that's duh, right? It, the easiest things are sometimes the hardest things to actually institute and live out. And so if you walk away with anything, walk away knowing that this is a journey. God knows it's a journey. Every aspect of our lives, he is doing a work in us. Allow him to complete that. Lean into the work that he wants to do in your life. Um, and as we pursue these goals together, man, I'll just be praying for your family, uh, for you as a couple. Um, we want to help you. And, and honestly, if there's anything that we can do, if there's anything that I can do, don't be afraid to reach out. Um, you guys know where to find me. You got me on email, Facebook, Instagram. I think I still have a Twitter account that I don't update much, but it's 2020. There's a million ways to find me. Uh, let us know if we can come alongside you, if we can recommend any steps that you can take as a family, as a couple. Uh, if you're struggling in singleness, if you're struggling coming out of a, a, a relationship that has ended, um, we want to walk alongside you, right? This isn't to shame you or embarrass you. It's simply to do our part um, to encourage you and, and help you with those next steps. Um, let, me, let me pray and then we'll, we'll wrap up for, for today. Father, we love you um, and we thank you for um, the truth of Scripture that lays out some of these things that we might call common sense, but God, they're hard. It's hard to be in a relationship with people. It's hard to be in a marriage relationship and yet you have ordained it. You have blessed it. Um, you've created it for us and for your glory. And so, God, we ask that in whatever context we're existing in now, um, you would reach into the hearts of each husband, of each wife, um, of each individual that anticipates filling one of those roles someday. God, to the hearts of those who once upon a time were called husband or wife, but are are uh, dealing with new realities in their life. God, you know who we are. You know where we're at. You know what we need. And so minister to each heart and each life. And God, where we can, to the best of our ability, help us to lean into these four goals that you've laid out in Scripture. Um, God, I pray for Christ-centered lives and marriages. I pray for mission-driven relationships. I pray for relationships that fight off the devil together in the name of Jesus. And God, I pray for marriages that would be covenant-keeping, that would get to the end of life and look back joyfully knowing that they made it in your strength, in your will. Father, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.